There comes a point when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it. Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South. Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah. Sunday, May 19th at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC. Good evening, everybody. We begin the readout tonight with Fighting Fire with Fire. The Republican Party, which is apparently consolidated around the idea of presenting no ideas, no policies, just resentment in order to drive out more of its base and try to retake power in Washington and around the country, importantly, without having to broaden that base in this midterm election year, is continuing its strategy of stoking rage and racialized cultural anxiety among white parents for political gain. Take Texas which has already criminalized the teaching of the right's favorite current boogeyman, critical race theory and the 1619 Project in public grade schools. But after professors at the University of Texas resolved to defend the rights of college professors to teach about America's racial history, Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick said that he wants to extend the purely theatrical ban on a thing that isn't even taught below law school to public universities, noting completely unironically that banning teaching things is what's behind his Liberty Institute at UT Austin. But the real fights over education are at the K through 12 level, where we've seen conservative, mainly conservative, white parents whipped up into a frenzy over mask mandates and lessons on race and gender and sexuality. And it's leading to terrifying real world consequences. A Reuters investigation detailed death threats and other harassing messages to school board members, including a letter sent to the home of a Loudoun County, Virginia board member and addressed to one of her adult children. It threatened to kill them both unless she resigns. The school board wars are happening all over this country. And again, it's not the grassroots effort that Republicans would have you believe. Dateline, Kansas City, Missouri. Today, it's hard for me to believe that I have to stand up here and discuss what the material is being utilized within our school system. I am sure you have removed many of the old classics off the shelves because the writing that is no long seen as appropriate, but you are refilling the shelves with disgusting child pornography. That woman reading her prepared talking points denied being, in, being inspired by other efforts at school board meetings. But the Kansas City Star noted that it was just another sign of a concerted national strategy against school boards, adding that in school board elections in the area last year, two out of the three conservatives who won seats were all backed by a New York-based PAC, the 1776 Project, which claims that schools are teaching anti-white ideology in the form of diversity and inclusion. Got that? You gotta love the honesty. And this 1776 Project is just one of the many dark money groups masquerading as grassroots. This one founded by a political commentator and conservative writer and raking in hundreds of thousands of dollars to try to take over school boards and make them more Republican and more right wing. And groups like this are doing this stuff because it works. Anxiety and anger are powerful motivations to vote. Tribalism too. And some House Democrats are finally sounding the alarm. According to Politico, the Dems campaign arm in the House is warning that unless the party forcefully confronts alarmingly potent 
their words, attacks on things like CRT and policing, they risk losing major ground to Republicans in this year's midterms. They add that these attacks are most effective with center-left voters, independents, and notably with Hispanic voters. The overarching message, don't ignore these attacks. Hit back with a strong rebuttal. Now, Ron DeSantis is doing his own version of the Republican culture wars in his so-called free state of Florida, just throwing it all at the wall, from criminalizing Black Lives Matter protests to banning mask mandates in schools to his don't say gay bill, deeming LGBTQ topics as inappropriate for kids while weaponizing the very idea of wokeness, which many white Americans embraced in the wake of George Floyd's murder. In Florida, that means DeSantis is attempting to legally prohibit public school teachers from teaching any lesson that might make white students, which is the implication, let's face it, feel discomfort about their race or gender. The group Equality Florida, which represents the interests of LGBTQ Floridians, is fighting back, however. Here is their latest ad. Miss George, why is this part crossed out? Joining me now is Nadine Smith, executive director of Equality Florida, and Matthew Dowd, founder of Country Over Party and an MSNBC political analyst. Nadine, I want to start with you. Talk about these ads because they're they're, they're very um, aggressive, and, and I actually think they're they're really well crafted in terms of messaging. What is the idea uh, behind putting these ads out there, and who are you trying to speak to? Well, you know, the message is really clear. What, despite Ron DeSantis's Orwellian use of free Florida. What he actually advocates for are video cameras in classrooms, microphones on teachers, uh, surveilling every conversation between teachers and students, an invasion even into the uh, doctor's office between parents, uh, their doctor and their child when it comes to trans young people. And it is the opposite of freedom. It is about book banning. It is about silencing. It's about erasing history. And for us, it was important because I think no matter where you fall in the political spectrum, uh, it's there's a big difference between I'm not going to pay to see that comedian or go to that concert. That's me in the free market making decisions. But when the government says you can't read this book, you can't learn about these topics. Uh, this even reaches into the workplace where, uh, for example, under the Stop Woke Act, uh, companies can be told are, are being told an employee can sue you if you have, for example, a sexual harassment prevention training that causes someone to say, hey, you know what, that made me feel uncomfortable. That made me feel guilty. And so what they are really trying to do is to censor, to police, to invade and to surveil us in, in all of these ways. And I think people are starting to push back. And it's, and it's, uh, it's a message that, that resonates because these are the words coming out of the mouth of the governor. I want cameras everywhere. I want your conversations to be listened to. And it's already having a chilling effect. Even before these bills have made their way through the process, we are seeing books being taken off uh, bookshelves. We are seeing rainbow safe space anti-bullying stickers being pulled down. The Florida Department of Education yanked down all LGBT inclusive anti-bullying resources. So people are seeing the real world impact of the DeSantis censorship and surveillance agenda. 
It, it is very Orwellian. I think that's the right term. Do we have uh, clip one? Let's see if we if we have that. This is another Equality Florida ad. Let's just. Oh, we, do we do we have it? Do we have it? I'm sorry. We do. Let's play it. All right, Chelsea, you're up. Tell us about your hero. I have two heroes. My two moms. It's okay. You should be proud. Go ahead. Mrs. Thompson, please report to the front office. You know, and, and Matthew, it is truly only the free state of Florida in the Orwellian or, you know, handmaid's tale under his eye sense. Right. I mean, the idea that the governor of, of, of a of a theoretically state in a free country is saying, no, I want cameras in the I want cameras to be watching your teachers at all times. I want everyone to be watched. I want you watching your neighbors. I want you suing your neighbors. And, and it's only in one direction, because let's just be clear. Ron DeSantis isn't concerned that black or brown or indigenous kids are going to feel uncomfortable. He's only concerned that white kids are going to feel uncomfortable or really their parents. Because I think the kids are smarter than that. But I want you to, 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 to talk about a bit the, the irony here. There was a very smart person on the Twitters who pointed this out yesterday. I retweeted it. and I'm going to read a little bit of it now. That In 2018, the conservative Washington examiner made literally the opposite argument when black parents and the NAACP came forward and said it makes black kids uncomfortable to have uh, books like To Kill a Mockingbird and The Adventures of Huck, Huckleberry Finn read in school because they have to hear the N-word being read out loud in class. This was the argument the Washington Examiner made at the time, revising or erasing history. Even artistic interpretations of time periods does a grave disservice to the very students whose quote-unquote feelings they're trying to protect. So the argument on the right then is black kids must get used to hearing the N-word used colloquially, and you need to suck it up and accept that. But white kids can't even learn that the people who enslaved people were white and these slaves were black, because that will make them sad. Unpack that for us. Well, you know, it's it's fascinating what we're the period of time we're in, in in America. And I think it completely has everything to do with the fact that we're a multicultural, multiracial, diverse society and that white Christian males I mean, you think about this for 150 years, white Christian males held 99% of the power positions of America for 150. Then for the next 75, white Christian males held 90% of the power positions in America. Today, that number is 80%. And white Christian males represent 28% of the country. And so it's not as if anybody is saying, no, 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 you only get 28%. Is is it? They got 80% and that's not enough that because it's fallen. And I think the Republicans are incredibly successful. And I'll agree with the Democratic caucus about this at speaking to the fear based part of humans brains, the reptilian part of our brain that we have evolved through that goes into a fear, goes into protection, goes, I'm going to lose something in the midst of this. And I think I fault the Democrats in the in this battle to a degree because the Republicans have launched a culture war. They don't like what the country's becoming. And the Democrats think they can win that culture war by talking about build back better or by, right. by talking about, you know, what are we going to do about inflation? When you're in a culture war, when somebody launches a war at you, you have to launch a war back at them about what kind of culture you believe in. Do you believe in a, we, and present a, a opposite side culture? 
a culture that believes in everybody's dignity, that respects all, that believes in all men and women are created equal, that the Democrats have to get a hold of this and not shy away and say, well, let's not talk about this. They have to present and win. If we're going to be an American and American democracy that's multicultural, Democrats and all of us have to win the culture war in a presentation of what America should be in the 21st century and why that's a better vision. Yeah. And, and, you know, just to play a, 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 a white Christian male, literally speaking for himself, because this is a perennial, right? Every Black History Month, we get somebody like this. This is Broward County. This is a, a, a guy who goes into a Broward County school board meeting and, uh, and he asks about why isn't there a white history month? I am a white heterosexual male. I'm part American Indian, Scottish, which is where the pin comes from. When will you have a White History Month, a heterosexual history month, or a male history month? As long as we're going to be recognizing different priorities in people's lives, this deserves recognition too. By the same token, I look at a school board that is all female. Where is going to be the male input on such a school board? Uh, you know, and Nadine, and just not to make it partisan, but I mean, th- that is the group of, of of voters that are overwhelmingly not available to Democrats or, you know, or anyone else but Republicans, because that's the grievance that you just heard Matthew talking about. But when you have 103 bills introduced in 2022, limiting lessons on race, gender and sexuality, 155 introduced just since 2021, 113 currently live in 35 different states, 15 anti-LGBTQ bills under consideration in nine states states, then there has to be, this has to be addressed. Part of that poll that Politico talked about said that groups that are leaning more to the center or center right, or even Hispanic groups say that Democrats are too judgmental, right? That they want the permissive attitude of Republicans that allow more leniency toward feeling a certain way and speaking a certain way about LGBTQ people or not wanting your kids to read those books or not wanting people to learn about Dr. King because they they only want to hear the one line that they like. How do you, as somebody whose organization is answering back in ads, address that? Well, I think Matthew is right in the sense that we have to take our values and put them center in, right there in the center. We believe in a world where everybody, including the man who, who stood up and asked about white history, where he has a place in this world. But what we're actually experiencing is not two sides of an argument. We aren't trying to take people's uh, heterosexual people's kids away. We're not trying to say you can't teach about straight people in, in schools. These are not opposite sides. What this is is about a group of people who grow smaller and smaller and more and more uh, fearful, uh, wanting to say, I get to dictate to you, Nadine, as a parent, what your child gets to see in school. And he doesn't get to acknowledge you uh, or your wife. He doesn't get to speak about his life. And any books that might reflect his experience, we're going to take those away. So to us, you know, there's plenty of space in this world for for everyone, but we cannot allow a small handful of people, because I don't believe they represent the majority, but a small handful of people who want to curate and censor the information that is available to us, whether it's in the school, in the university, in the workplace. And I think this message is resonating with people because they see it. 
They hear it. They, yeah. they understand. And we have to give them a, a framework for understanding that this is not no, freedom. This is censorship. This is surveillance. Indeed. No one wants surveillance and Big Brother watching you. And by the way, I hate to break it to that guy, but every day is White History Month, 365 days a year. What are you talking about? And Brad, Nadine Smith, Matthew Dowd. Thank you both very much. Up next on The Readout, the January 6th committee is not afraid to take on Trump. But what about the DOJ? They seem to be ignoring the wrongdoing of the former president. Isn't that just a form of appeasement for the bad guys? Also, as a result of all this progress and the tools we now have, we're moving toward a time when COVID isn't a crisis, but is something we can protect against and treat. Surgeon General Vivek Morthy joins me on what happens next with COVID cases now declining, plus a crisis that's only getting worse, the alarming rise in hate crimes against the AAPI community. And when it comes to tonight's absolute worst, nothing is on the up and up. And I'm not even talking about the Republican Party. The readout continues after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. President Joe Biden dealt Donald Trump another setback today when he instructed the National Archives to turn over the visitor logs from the Trump White House to the Select Committee on January 6th. That committee has now interviewed more than 500 witnesses, received 63,000 documents, and issued roughly 86 subpoenas. So, given that congressional investigations are notoriously slow, they are making steady progress. In contrast, apart from prosecuting the rank-and-file insurrectionists themselves, the Justice Department seems to have done very little. There's no investigation that we know of into Trump himself, nor of his closest allies. To that point, it's been 65 days since the House voted to refer Trump's former chief of staff, Mark Meadows, for criminal charges of contempt. But it's been it's been crickets so far from the DOJ. As columnist Jennifer Rubin points out in The Washington Post this week, Attorney General Merrick Garland seems to be so deliberately timid and apolitical to the point of appeasing anti-democratic forces. In other words, inaction is an expression of partisanship. Holding Donald Trump to a lower standard just because he's a deeply polarizing Republican ex-president is the same thing as giving him preferential treatment. The problem with Garland's apparent thinking is that, by definition, investigating and prosecuting crimes is not partisan. The principle of equal justice under the law, which is engraved in bold relief on the front of the United States Supreme Court, applies to every person whatever their politics, position, or circumstance. And by the way, we've seen plenty of democracies prosecute former heads of state, including France's Nicolas Sarkozy, Italy's Silvio Berlusconi, and not one but two former leaders of South Korea. Now, to be fair, Jennifer Rubin's column does hold out hope that Garland will do the right thing. 
but not until after the January 6th committee has done all the heavy lifting of gathering the evidence. Rubin says that if evidence is as compelling as committee members keep suggesting, Garland will find it exceptionally difficult not to prosecute. Of course, that would be welcome news. But the clock is ticking, and it's long past the time for Merrick the Mild to shift the wheels of justice into high gear. Joining me now is Maya Wiley, former assistant U.S. attorney and an MSNBC legal analyst and Democratic strategist Juanita Tolliver. And, you know, so that people don't think that I'm just, you know, going after Merrick Garland and being mean to him. Let me play you what he himself said. This is what he promised to do. This is Merrick Garland literally one month ago. The Justice Department remains committed to holding all January 6th perpetrators at any level accountable under law, whether they were present that day or were otherwise criminally responsible for the assault on our democracy. And, and my, I guess that depends on what all means and what any level means, right? I mean, that seems to mean all in any level if we're taking him at his word. Yeah, and I think what was important about him making that statement is that after he did, we did see seditious conspiracy charges against the Oath Keepers. What we don't know is whether or not that is part of a strategy that also might uh, flip some folks if there is information that they were having conversations, which I suspect they may have with Roger Stone and other captains uh, in the army of Donald Trump, particularly in that war room the day before January 6th. So we don't really know where that's going or how the Justice Department is building its case from the bottom to top. We do know that it has moved up the food chain and gotten bigger and bigger uh, indictments along the way. I think your point, which is really important, is it's going to be a very hard pill for the public to swallow if there is not some form of very serious criminal investigation that includes Donald Trump directly and explicitly because he has been connected to these various circles of conspiracy from, as we know, the Georgia, the Fulton County District Attorney, uh, actually looking at that phone call and all the activities Donald Trump personally engaged in, uh, trying to find votes that would change the outcome of the Georgia election, which was one of the central conspiracies that the January 6th committee is looking into. And there are others, even in the Bob Woodward and Robert Costa book, there, there are sources that told them that Trump was saying to Pence, wouldn't it be great, uh, essentially, if all of this active violence happens at the Capitol, wouldn't that be great? And Pence is going, no, that would not be great. <laughs> And Donald Trump's not convinced. So we can't we don't have time to go through all the evidence that makes it a very hard pill to swallow. And my hope is we will not have to swallow that pill. Well, and, you know, wanting it for uh, just on a, on a political side, I mean, because obviously the Department of Justice is not involved in the politics here. But I wonder what message the inaction sends to elected Republicans, because it feels like this is emboldening. Right. I mean, if if the. Former president's last name was Clinton, whether it be Mr. or Mrs. Clinton or Obama. I have no doubt that not only would there be an investigation, it would be open. 
it would be, you know, Janet Reno wasn't exactly shy, you know, about saying, oh, I'm looking into some things here. But it seems that when the president is a Republican, there is this deep resonant, you know, sort of hesitance to confront them. And, and I don't maybe I'm seeing things that aren't there. But your, your thoughts. Look, I think Merrick Garland is being who he has been, as frustrating as that is. Apparently, he's been this kind of cautious guy. But I think back to what he did in October when President Biden said, yeah, I hope people like Steve Bannon are prosecuting for defying congressional subpoenas. The DOJ released a statement saying, hey, we're independent. We're, we're, we're functioning independently. And I think he did that for two reasons. Not only because he's a cautious guy, but because he wanted to signal that we're not operating like the DOJ did under Trump, where he treated it like his personal law firm. But that's highly frustrating knowing everything we know about January 6th before, during, and after the attack. Because essentially, you can look at the GOP and they're thinking Merrick Garland's giving them a pass saying, hey, you aided and abetted in this effort to overturn an election. You aided and abetted in protecting Trump by not uh, voting to convict him in his second impeachment trial a year ago this week, by refusing to hold him accountable, by refusing to uh, support an independent commission to investigate January 6th. And on top of that, the Republicans are celebrating by saying, hey, if we flip five seats in the House and one in the Senate, you better believe this is going to be a Congress of vengeance. And we know they're going to follow through on that claim and that, that promise, especially if nothing comes through. And, and I appreciate you and I talking about Merrick Garland's speech on January 5th, but the reality is that little glimmer that he'll take this to the highest level of governments is not going to cut it when our democracy and our constitution are on the line. Well, and, and very quickly to stay with you for a minute, Juanita, I mean, you, you wrote a piece, you know, sort of pushing back on the Nancy Pelosi saying, hey, Republicans, take your party back. You're like, the party's gone, right? I mean, the Republicans are already, and people should read that piece, by the way, uh, that you wrote at the Grio. I mean, the party is gone. Okay, let's just be clear. Um, and they have been emboldened not just to run on this. They're now running on the insurrection as a good thing and making mugs about it. And they're running on it and they're trying to change laws in these states so that they can try to legally do what Trump tried to do illegally. This is their play. Hey, we failed in a coup this time, but we'll get them next time, right? That's what the Republican message here. And you're right. There is no party to take back because what used to be the fringe has now become the core of the GOP. And McConnell's reiterating that. McCarthy's reiterating that, especially if they have no legislative agenda for 2022. Their agenda is a sham impeachment trial against Biden if they take back the House. Their agenda is making sure that they can remove Democrats from committee as revenge for having Gosar removed or Marjorie Taylor Greene removed. That's who they're defending. That's who they're putting up front. And Democrats need to respond. Show that to the voters at the district level. Let them know what's about to come for them if they if they allow Republicans to take back the House and the Senate. Because this isn't a joke, Joy. You know it. They're going to follow through. They're going to do everything they're saying they're going to do. And, and I think people need to start taking that seriously and putting that front and center in this midterm election. And the only thing that could be a deterrent would be if people feared prosecution. And right now, let's just be honest, they don't. Uh, at least the higher ups that were involved in the insurrection. Maya Wiley, Juanita Tolliver, thank you both. Uh, up next, the CDC says it's reviewing guidance for mask use as cities and states across the country start to relax restrictions. U.S. Surgeon General Dr. Vivek Morthy joins me next.
On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday. Hey, it's Chris Hayes. This week on my podcast, Why Is This Happening? MSNBC legal correspondent Lisa Rubin joins to unpack the Trump trial. One of the big takeaways from this is, is our system flawed, not in the sense that more people can't access that process, but in just giving that much process in the sense that someone like Donald Trump can abuse it? Most criminal defendants never get the chance to exercise all of their due process rights. Donald Trump is stretching due process beyond its point of elasticity. That's this week on Why Is This Happening? Search for Why Is This Happening wherever you're listening right now and follow. We want to give people a break from things like mask wearing when these metrics are better and then have the ability to reach for them again should things worsen. If and when we update our guidance, we will communicate that clearly. That new mask guidance that CDC Director Rochelle Walensky is talking about could be released as early as next week, according to NBC News. It comes as COVID cases are dropping nationwide after a big surge from the Omicron variant. White House COVID-19 response coordinator Jeff Zeit said today that as a result of the progress being made, quote, we're moving toward a time when COVID isn't a crisis, but is something we can protect against and treat. While the CDC is still finalizing its new guidance, we are already seeing some red and blue states, as well as some businesses dropping their mask mandates. Companies like Amazon and Walmart have announced that fully vaccinated workers will no longer be required to wear masks. And as of tomorrow, the same will be true for vaccinated guests at Disney World. Joining me now is U.S. Surgeon General Dr. Vivek Morthy. Uh, and Dr. Morthy, thank you so much for being here. And uh, I appreciate you making the time because the reason we invited you on is we saw your tweet and your tweet thread um, about your potential Disney World customer, your baby girl, um, suffering from COVID. And you've been keeping us up to date with how she's doing, at least on social media. So please tell us how she's doing. Well, Joy, first, thank you so much for asking. Uh, thankfully, my, my four-year-old who tested positive over the weekend is doing okay. She's still got a sore throat and she's pretty congested and is having fevers on and off. But, you know, she's still playing with her brother. She's still smiling, which makes us happy. And she's still breathing well. So, you know, we're grateful that, um, you know, that she's, she's okay. But it's, you know, just a reminder to me that this is what millions of parents have had to go through over the last two years, seeing their children get sick. And a lot of them have asked the same questions I think I asked over the weekend when my daughter tested positive, which is, you know, is she going to be okay? Is there something I could have done uh, differently to protect her? And did I do something wrong? You know, these are the thoughts that go through your head as a parent. You know, before we're, you know, professionals before we're, whatever our job title is, we're parents first. Yeah, I, I can absolutely relate. And you're right. And, and, and it, it brings us right to that kind of question, right? So the CDC is saying COVID is something that's becoming sort of endemic. It's something we're just going to live with. We can treat it. We don't have to worry as much about, you know, imminent death, you know, because we are vaccinated. Our children are vaccinated, but not babies. Babies can't be vaccinated. And I'm not sure if your daughter falls into that age group. But I mean, I guess that's the question I would have for you as a parent who's now living this. 
How do you feel about this opening that we're seeing? Uh, I just came back from California. You know, the mask mandates are starting to relax in a lot of even blue states, blue cities, businesses, Disney World. Uh, I believe there's a big festival coming up that's going to change. Coachella. Oh, my God. Coachella. Um, and the Stage Coast festivals are going to drop all of the COVID-related restrictions. So they're not going to require attendees to be masked, vaxxed, tested, nothing. How do you feel about it? Does that feel safe to you as a parent of young kids? Yeah, it's a really important question, Joy. And I have my daughter who, you know, tested positive is four. So she's too young uh, to get vaccinated right now. And there are a lot of parents who have kids under five and who are trying to figure out how best to protect them. There are a couple of things that I think we have to remember as we go forward. One is that there are still going to be people in our community uh, who don't have protection or who are at higher risk. Uh, those include our kids under five who don't have protection yet. Those include higher risk individuals who may be older or who may be immunocompromised. Uh, or who may have multiple medical conditions and put them at increased risk. And we still have to do whatever we can uh, to make sure we're not just protecting ourselves, but looking out for other people. Now, look, as things get better, as cases come down, hospitalizations come down, uh, we can and should uh, ultimately move to start pulling back restrictions. You know, we don't want to live with restrictions forever, but we need to do that safely. And what that means is that we've got to use our vaccines and boosters, they reduce our risks. We've got to use our treatments and make sure that people know that there are treatments, oral and IV treatments that can help reduce your risk, even if you do get sick. Uh, and we've got to use our masks and our testing wisely. You know, the high quality masks that we've been now distributing millions of to pharmacies and community health centers around the country, they can help protect you uh, from getting infected by others. We used to think in the early days that, hey, the masks only protect other people from getting sick if you're sick, but that's not true. A high quality mask can protect you as well. So we've got to use this, but it's got to be considerate because there are a lot of people out there who still need protection. You see, that's and that's the balance, right? I mean, I just flew, you know, I'm flying more and more and, and I'm happy that they still have the mask mandate, quite frankly, in the airport and on planes, because I still do worry about getting sick or getting other people sick, especially getting other people sick. I, it really worries me. But I wonder if you where you fall on this idea that people who have been doing the right things, who've gotten vaccinated, who've gotten boosted, who are masking and doing the right thing that society should be introducing more rewards, that you should be able to go to a concert, you should be able to go to a restaurant or a bar and unmask because you've been doing the right things? Or do you think that we need to be slower about it because so many people are unvaccinated and they are still getting sick and still dying? We're now at, what, 930,000 people have died. At this point, it's mostly unvaccinated people that are dying. Where do you fall on that balance of how much we should still be doing and restricting ourselves? Well, I think we, we have to wait to the appropriate moment to do this. You know, we still at this point in time uh, have so many people who are getting sick each day. We have around 80,000 people hospitalized with COVID. We are still losing around 2,000 people a day uh, to this virus. These, these numbers were certainly uh, worse with hospitalizations and with cases two weeks ago. So we are getting better, but there's still a lot of virus around. And one of the things we've learned over the last two years is that when there's a lot of community burden of a virus, so to speak, uh, that's when people are generally at higher risk. Okay, that's when you know gathering uh, can be a higher risk proposition. That's when being in crowded indoor settings uh, can be especially a higher risk. So I think we've got to wait for the right moment. It's one of the reasons why the CDC is actually working uh, on guidance uh, to help uh, communities figure out when the right time is to pull back. So many of the states finally just keep in mind that have announced that they're going to be pulling back on mask requirements. They've announced future dates, and they're not always necessarily mm -hmm. saying they're doing uh, getting away rid of masks in all settings. Some are keeping them in schools, some are peeling them back just in public settings like, uh, you know, stores or concert events or things of that sort. 
So we've got to do this carefully and we've got to remember that uh, this is more than just about looking out for our own health. We've got to look out for those who are vulnerable and help protect them as yep. well. Indeed. Um, well, your, 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 your kids are very lucky to have a very, very cool dad. Not everybody can say their dad is the Surgeon General of the United States uh, and, a, and a very great one at that. Dr. Vivek Morthy, thank you very much. Wishing you and your family the best. And tonight's absolute worst is still ahead. But first, addressing the alarming rise in hate crimes against Asian American and Pacific Islanders after yet another brutal killing in New York City. Stay with us. There is shock and anger after the murder of Christina Yuna Lee, a woman stabbed to death inside her New York apartment by a man identified as Asimad Nash. Surveillance video appears to show Nash trailing Lee from the street and into her building. Prosecutors allege that Nash forced his way inside Lee's apartment and stabbed her 40 times. Police arrested Nash on charges of murder and burglary, though the police have not called the killing a hate crime. Crimes against Asian Americans, and in particular, women, have soared during the pandemic. And joining me now is Connie Wan, co-founder of AAPI Women Lead, and Philip Atiba Goff, co-founder and CEO of the Center for Policing Equity. Thank you both for being here. Connie, I want to start with you. There's a, 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 a statistic um, from your organization that's pretty glaring, um, that 60% of AAPI women and girls experience some form of sexual or domestic abuse. Um, and just as an example of why, there was a recent case on January 19th of a woman named Michelle Goh, who was fatally shoved in front of a New York subway car. That was just a month ago. And now we have this really horrific case. Talk about these anxieties and how the pandemic has impacted them. Thanks, Joy. Thanks. And, you know, thanks for having us on the show to talk about this. Sure. You know, pre-pandemic, there was already a large number of Asian and Pacific Islander women and girls and femmes who have been subject to gender-based violence in the form of street harassment, in the form of gender-based violence on the streets, at home, um, at the workplace. So this was pre-pandemic. And what we're noticing from other studies is that there is an increase of violence um, associated with the pandemic and the racial kind of tensions and um, the climate that we are experiencing right now. So up to 70% of our women have said that they've experienced harassment um, that is related to race and gender violence. I think that's really important. And I think what is also really important is what rendered um, both Christina and Michelle's cases very painful is how common the violence against us is, but that how unnoticed and invisibilized our experiences have been. And that's the case for Asians, Pacific Islanders, Latinx, Black women, our stories of suffering from gender-based violence that may or may not result in death has typically gone under the radar. And if it's ever noticed, it's been ignored. Um, and if we do say anything to the state in the form of the criminal justice system, them. We're typically either further punished, um, further subject to violence, and or um, we have to prove the violence against us. I think that's been a really challenging situation for us where we are vulnerable to violence and then we have very few protections. And if we go to what seems to be protection, we're actually further punished and violated again. And I think that's something that we really have to think about. Our organization also really thinks about the kind of expansive definition of violence against us. We don't think only about hate crime as a problem. We think about poverty as an issue, gentrification as an issue, detentions 
as an issue, deportations as an issue. These are all forms of violence that have been impacting Asians and Pacific Islanders, two communities that are very different, but are very vulnerable at this moment. Yeah. And, you know, Philip, it becomes even more complex because, you know, the, the sort of racialization of the pandemic, it, it pings out from, you know, sort of what you might think of as sort of the usual sort of suspect groups and it pings into communities of color. So you wind up having these sort of, you know, cross racial challenges um, in terms of crime and punishment. In this case, it also intersects with a lot of other things. So the NBC, NBC News has done a piece on this 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 person who is alleged to have uh, killed uh, Christina Lee. He had been arrested previously, but he had never had a mental health invest, uh, intervention. During his January mm. 7th arraignment, the judge, whose name was Judge Herbert Moses, ordered Nash to be freed without having to come up with bail. Now, the judge could have imposed other requirements, including a mental health evaluation. He didn't do it. So there's a lot of stuff that's crossing here. Your thoughts? Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's also the case that um, the the judge is supposed to be responsive to what prosecutors asked for. Prosecutors didn't ask for bail to be set. Um, I, I think, though, in, in these kinds of, of contexts, it's very easy to talk about. I mean, we have someone who allegedly killed someone in, in the most savage, tragic, awful way. It's a 35-year-old woman with so much in front of her um, in a context where in the last two years, we've ten, seen 10,000 hate crimes against uh, within the AAPI community. Um, so it's easy to talk about how this individual should have been treated differently to prevent this individual crime. I got to say, though, you know, I, I have to say, uh, Dr. Wan, you have done a, an amazing job of explaining and providing context for this. Um, <clears throat> These are also overlapping systems of failed care, right? When Ms. Lee called 911, called to reach out, and there wasn't a response quick enough. When folks are calling and saying, hey, I'm worried about my boyfriend or my husband. I'm worried about this person on the street, right? Sometimes their only option is something that is violent and invasive and victimizes them. So it's easy yeah. to start talking about this as if we have to be tougher on the people, the individuals committing the crimes, as opposed to we have to create a broader network of care so that someone who was yeah. last addressed, so far as I can see, was a homeless shelter, that we've got shelters and mental health of, available to them, that there are folks who can identify mm -hmm. this person is going through crisis before they end up in crisis hurting someone yeah. else. Because that's how yeah. these networks of violence frequently happen. Someone who's targeted for violence ends up committing more violence, and then we want to blame the original target. That's not a way out of it as morally tempting as it might be. And, and, and also it feels like more policing of the AAPI community is a complicated solution as well. So kind of just address sort of what the community is sort of saying, what is the voice of the community want? Like what, and, and how can we have more intersectional support here? You know, I think that's a great question. Um, and to be clear and transparent, there is a lot of conflict between the different communities. We're not, yep. you know, homogenous, right? We are made up of multiple uh, ethnicities um, and experiences. But I can say that those of us who have been and are survivors of multiple forms of violence, including gender-based violence, right? Including state violence. Um, those of us who are primarily poor, some of us who are sex workers, many of us who are migrant workers, have been working and organizing against violence writ large. And we've been organizing on the streets and in our homes. What we've been doing is paroling, paroling, patrolling um, our communities. We have elders patrolling our communities. We're not necessarily yeah. relying on the police. 
We have mm-hmm. mutual aid networks that we've established across the country where we can rely mm-hmm. on one another. We have also, you know, created healing justice workshops. We've created community care. We've created community defense, community safety programs, bystander yeah. programs, all of which are about us, right? And are led yeah. by our communities. That's what needs to be Indeed. resourced. Indeed. Uh, Kai Wan, um, Philip Ativa Goff, you guys are great. I uh, wish we had more time. Thank you very much. We really appreciate this conversation. And do stick around for tonight's absolute worst because, well, bad behavior on the world stage is nothing to celebrate. Back in a sec. Yesterday, the Russian government announced that they were pulling some troops back from the Ukrainian border. But tonight, the Biden administration has said Russia has been adding troops. It's no surprise because Russia has a reputation for playing by its own rules, which is why Ronald Reagan said trust but verify when negotiating with Mikhail Gorbachev. And that brings us to the Olympics. In 2016, the director of Russia's anti-doping laboratory admitted to the world that ahead of the 2014 Sochi Olympics, he helped his country run a state-sanctioned doping program. He worked to hide it from international officials and helped swap out tainted urine samples to ensure that none of their athletes would be busted. Dozens of Russian athletes, including at least 15 medal winners, were part of this program, which had been planned for years to ensure Russian dominance at the Games. This shocking revelation led to the banning of nearly 50 athletes. Many successfully appealed the bans, but the scandal left Russia a global sports pariah. And now that bleak history casts a long shadow on the Beijing Olympics. The 212 Russian athletes taking part in this year's Olympic Games can't even compete with their country's name, flag or anthem because of the sanctions levied against the country in the wake of the doping scandal. Last week, one of those athletes, Kamila Valieva, triggered yet another doping scandal, once again casting doubt on Russia's credibility. Prior to attending the Olympics, the 15-year-old figure skater tested positive for a banned substance. But the results were only shared with her on the first day of competition in Beijing. The drug that she tested positive for is a common heart medication, which can enhance endurance. Right now, it's not known if she knowingly took the banned drug. The New York Times reported that her sample also included other substances used to treat heart issues. Some experts are speculating that based on past cases, it was possible that she had been given the banned drug by adults without her knowledge. The news immediately undermined Russia's first place results in last week's team figure skating event. The ripple effects are so damaging that there will be no medal ceremony for anybody if she winds up in the top three. The court of arbitration for sport allowed her to compete in yesterday's women's short program, despite objections from a string of organizations as well as former figure skaters. That was the hardest event that I've ever had to cover. And I want to thank you all for supporting the skaters that should be in this competition, whose life's work is on the line. It's frustrating because there are so many clean athletes out there competing on a level playing field. And this is not, um, I think, the spirit of the Olympics Mm -hmm. to have uh, a positive athlete out there competing. It's a mess. It's a total, unbelievable mess. And it just no one will make a decision. Cheaty, cheaty, cheaty. Well, despite it all, Valieva ended the night in first place. And she will compete again on Thursday for the gold. But again, nobody will get a medal ceremony if she wins. Look at that. So tonight, that court of arbitration, they're the absolute worst. 
for allowing this absolute fiasco to drag on as dozens of Olympic athletes and their dreams are left in limbo. And that is tonight's readout. When news breaks, go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows and hosts, and the latest updates on the 2024 election. Go beyond the what to understand the why. Download the app now at msnbc.com app.